0: It says, but you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things. So let's pray. Father, we pray, Lord, that you would uh, speak to us tonight. Um, All of us here, all of us listening, Lord, we need to hear from you, Lord, by your spirit and only by your spirit. So we pray you would bless us tonight, Lord, and be glorified in all things, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So we know all things. I don't know, do you feel like you know all things? Uh, We obviously don't know all things. Uh, There's a verse in Psalms that says the Lord preserves the simple. And I take great comfort in that verse and I repeat that verse a lot to myself. The Lord preserves the simple. He takes care of us. You know, sometimes we think we know everything, And sometimes we feel like we should know everything. Sometimes we feel like we should have an answer for everything. But Paul said in the Bible, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. Paul also said in Corinthians, he said, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am also known. I don't think there's been a Christian who has ever been born, who has ever lived on this earth, who hasn't looked up to heaven and said, I don't understand. I don't understand why this is happening, why that is happening. Uh, the thing that we don't know the most and the question that we ask probably a lot, especially these days, is why? You know, Why is this happening? Lord, why are you allowing this to happen in our country? Why are you allowing this to happen in my life? You know, why? And the thing, the answer to every question of why is simply because of God's purpose. That's why. Because of God's purpose. Which we don't always know all the time, and there's a lot of things that we don't know. There are things we don't know, but we do know what the scripture says about our God. And we believe what the scripture says about our God. In spite of what we see, in spite of what we feel, uh, in spite of what we experience, we believe what the scripture says about our God. So no, we don't know all things, but we know what is needful to know. We, we know about our God. We know our God. We know his nature. We know what the scriptures say about him. Uh, I was talking to someone uh, last week uh, who does not believe that the Bible is the word of God, but he loves the book of Job. And he thinks it's the greatest work of literature ever written. And uh, he just loves that book. And he asked me what I thought the major theme was. And I said, I know my Redeemer lives. And I asked him what he thought the major theme was. And he said, I'm God and you're not. Which I thought was right on. You know, that he got the gist of it. Uh, We don't know all things, but we need, but what needs to be known, we know. has been revealed to us. In Matthew, uh, when Jesus was with with his apostles, he he asked them, who do people say that I am? And they said, some John the Baptist, some Elijah. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered him and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. We know the truth. We know what is the truth, and we know who is the truth. We know what needs to be known. True, we don't know all things, but we know what needs to be known. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. What else is there to know? The only reason we know this is because it has been revealed by God. Uh, In 1 John, in another place, He says, But the anointing which you have received from him abides in you, and you do not need that anyone teach you. But as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you will abide in him. You do not need anyone to teach you. So, you know, people can get into a place where, you know, I know a lot, I know the Bible. I, you know the Bible says I know all things it says I don't need anyone to teach me so I really don't have to be in fellowship that much and, and that sounds good to our flesh but it's death to our spirit. In Hebrews it says let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some but exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day approaching do we see the day approaching more and more, closer and closer, quicker and quicker. Uh, Pastor Rob was talking about it this morning, the things that are happening in the world and the things that are happening in our country. Uh, we see these things happening, the day approaching. Uh, he was summarizing the, one of the things that's going in our, in our country is the, the threat on freedom of speech in our country. And, and we can all see it. And the sad thing is when you talk to people and you talk about this, uh, many, many, many people have no idea what you're even talking about. And then there are many other people who say, good. You know, considering who they're marginalizing, good. You know, this, this country is definitely under threat and things are changing. Um, but we need to be together. All the more reason why we need to be in fellowship as we see the day approaching. And the Bible says to do good. And in order to do good, you have to be around other people. You have to be around brothers and sisters. Uh, Never before in history has it been more needful for us to be and meet together and to get in his word together and to fellowship together. We need each other. If we're not in fellowship, and it seems like today, I think we all probably know some people who have dropped out of fellowship. We just don't see them anymore. If we're not in fellowship, we've been deceived and we're missing out on a tremendous gift from God. We're just missing out on what God has for us, and it's a shame. And in Ephesians, it says, he, gave himself, gave, he himself gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Pastor, teachers are people the Lord has raised up through whom the Lord equips the saints for the ministry and edification. You know, our time alone with the Lord that we all need, whether it's morning or night, but just that special time when it's just us and the Lord is so absolutely necessary. That's like the meal. Bible studies are sort of like the dessert. If we're living on desserts alone, our spiritual health will will deteriorate. If we have the meal and don't get the dessert, then we're missing out on a real blessing that the Lord would have for us, for our benefit. God doesn't raise up pastors and teachers for no reason. We need to pray for our pastors, uh, that they, the Lord would enable them to teach, to receive a message from the Lord, and that they are enabled by the Spirit to run with it and deliver it to God's people. Not adding to the word or taking away but showing and explaining the doctrine of faith. That in view of the whole word of God, this is what the Spirit would say to us concerning this verse. Also that our pastors are enabled to preach the gospel. For those who come to church and who don't know the Lord, that they can hear the good news of salvation and the forgiveness of sins. And also for believers, for us. You know, It's part of the reason we take communion, that the Lord gave us that, to remind us. Because the joy of the Lord is our strength. We need to be reminded. And that our pastors would be able to prophesy. You know, that gift is mentioned in the Bible. And you don't hear too much about it. And it's kind of a mystery. You know, you kind of wonder, what does that mean to prophesy in the New Testament? But we're exhorted to pray for that gift. Paul said, he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. You know, And we're to pray for that, that by the Spirit, when we speak to one another spiritual things, the words enlighten our souls. They, they just zap us. You know, a word from the Lord. And we need to hear the Lord speak specific words of life to us as a church and to each one of us as individuals. We need to hear those words. Verse 21, he says, I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and no lie is of the truth. 2 John 1 9 says, Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house nor greet him. The doctrine of Christ, the virgin birth, birth that he is the son of man and the son of God, that he is divinity, that he is sinless, that he died on the cross, a propitiation for the sins of the world, that he rose from the dead and descended into heaven, and that he is going to return to establish his kingdom and that we're saved by grace through faith alone. The doctrine of Christ. And anyone who does not bring this doctrine, and it doesn't matter how clean cut they are, how polite they are, how white their shirts are when they knock on your door, or come off your television set, it says, do not receive them. No lie is of the truth. Verse 22. Who is a liar, but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist, who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. I would imagine that straight poison doesn't taste very good. So if you want to poison somebody, you've got to add something to it that's a little tasty, and which is what the enemy does. That's what the deceiver does. His poison, right from the beginning, has been, did God really say? That the word of God, the Bible, is not true. That's his poison. And he'll mix it. this poison with tasty things that appeal to people, but leave out Christ. You know, you, you can worship any way you want, you can have a God, you can have your religion and do good works and, and do all this stuff, but no Christ, no Redeemer, no salvation. The only way to God is through Jesus Christ. And there are only two options if one believes there is a God, that he has manifested himself in many ways or that he has manifested himself one way. The many ways to God is more logical and more digestible to our brains and to most of the world. But that alone should discount it, because God is not something made out of or in our own image. It doesn't come from us. There is one glorious way, God reaching down to us, and it's revealed in the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, the doctrine of Christ, God's way, Jesus Christ. In 1 John 5.12, it says, He that has the Son has life, and he that has not the Son has not life. If a person has Christ, they have life. There is no life outside of God. There is only one source of life, and that is God. Nowhere else. 24. Therefore, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, You also will abide in the Son and in the Father. In other words, keep the faith. Like we tell the kids in Sunday school, believe who he is, believe what he says, believe what he has done, believe that he has done it for you, believe that he will love you forever, and now I want to obey him. 25. And this is the promise that he has promised us, eternal life. And this is the main message, I think, for tonight just the contemplation of eternal life that God has given us. You know, we we tell the kids in Sunday school, what does God want us to do? And you get all the good answers. You know, he wants us to read the Bible, he wants us to obey our parents, but we tell them there's really only one thing that God wants us to do, and that's live. He wants us to live. He said, I came that they may have life and have it more abundantly. Eternal life, it speaks of Quantity of life and quality. We know that we have quantity because our salvation is secure. We know that a million, billion, quadrillion years from now, we're going to be flying around doing something. We're going to see what all eternity holds. And, you know, what a joyous thing to think about. That because of what Jesus did, in spite of anything that I have ever done or haven't done, and because of what Jesus said, we are going to be alive forever, and we are going to see forever and live in forever. Uh, we're going to see what eternity holds. John 3:16: "For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life." John :658. Jesus said, "This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your father ate the manna and are dead." He who eats this bread will live forever. Our quantity of life, eternal life, is guaranteed. You can't earn it, and you can't lose it. You just receive it. You receive it. You believe, and you say, Lord, I want it. Isaiah 28, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Our salvation is secured. Quantity of life is guaranteed. Don't have to work for it, can't lose it. Quality of life, it's also a gift. It's all grace. It's all a gift. But quality of life has something more to do with our response to the gospel, our response to the love of God. You know, we see a rich man and beautiful house, Uh, nice vehicles, a lot of play toys, they've got good health, they're successful, they've got money in the bank, and we say, that person has good quality of life. And from an earthly perspective, they do. It's true. That's good quality of life. And then we see a person living in the street and we say, that person does not have quality of life. And by earthly standards, that's true. But by God's standards, quality of life is much more than what we have, our environment, or our capabilities. It's much more eternally more stable, fulfilling, and eternal. The quality of life, the abundance of life that Jesus said he came to give us. The homeless man living in a shelter who has Christ has a quality of life that the rich man who does not know God doesn't have. Jesus said in John, the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. So, We know we have the quantity of life. We can rest in that. We're saved because of what somebody did outside of ourselves. We know we have that. But this quality of life, just day by day as we're living on this earth, how do we get that quality of life? How do we experience the quality of abundant life that Jesus wants to give us? 1 Corinthians, Paul said, for you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And another place in Corinthians, he says again, you were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. When we glimpse the price that Jesus paid for us, when we get just a little glimpse into the price that he paid for our salvation, that's like first step on the trail to receiving that abundant quality of life. Philippians says, Who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Considering the price that he paid, I don't know, you probably all heard the Chuck Missler story about the dogs. Anyways, Chuck Missler, to kind of get this point across, illustrated this. He said, pretend that you are... In heaven, and you're flying around the universe, and you're having a great time, and everything is wonderful, and God comes up to you and says, I've got something for you to do. Would you do it? And because you're just so joyous of being there, you say, yes, anything, Lord. I'll do anything. And he says, points down to this planet, and he says, you see this planet down there? It's full of dogs. I want you to go down and tell those dogs that I love them. Will you do it? Sure, absolutely. And he says, well, there's one more thing. Uh, Those dogs are all vicious pit bulls. And I want you to go down and tell them that I love them. Will you do it? Okay, sure, whatever. Yes, I'll do it. And there's another thing. When you go down there and tell those vicious pit bulls that I love them, you have to go down as a French poodle. Uh, Will you do it? Uh, and you know, start thinking about this. I, you know, and oh, well, there's another thing too. When you go down as a French poodle to those vicious pit bulls, they are going to tear you to shreds. Will you do it? Man, I don't know. I, let me think about this. Oh, and there's one more thing. You're going to have to stay a French poodle forever. And that kind of illustrates the price that Jesus paid. There is a man in heaven. He, you know, he, he did not consider it equal, not, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. He was in the form of God, and he became a man. And there is a man in heaven when we can't comprehend what Jesus gave up, the price that he paid for us. first step at quality of life, consider the price Jesus paid and obtaining that quality of life, Experience it, experiencing it on a day-to-day basis, on a practical basis every single day. To do that, there is really only one word, bondservant, becoming a bondservant of Christ. That's how we experience that abundant life every single day, and we know what a bond servant is. Back in those days, if someone was in debt or whatever, they became a servant, a slave in somebody's house, and they had to serve a certain number of years in order to get out of debt to pay it back. And then when their years were up, they were free. But sometimes the servant would go to their master and say, I don't want to leave. I I want to stay with you, you know, I want to become your slave for good because, you know, you're, you're good. This is the best thing I've ever had, and I have nothing else. I want to live. So, and they would take that person and put his ear against the door jam and put a hole through it and put a ring in their ear, and that would show that they were a bond servant. They volunteered for it. They wanted to do it, to become a slave. And in view of the great goodness of our Lord, that should be our prayer. That should be our heart. That should be where we're at, where we just pray, Lord, make me your slave. Make me your slave. Because that is when we experience abundant life. Paul said, you were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. Don't be enslaved by the culture, by the standards of this world, by the culture in our society, but become a bondservant of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul referred to himself as. We want to live. That's why back in those days, the bondservant volunteered for this, wanted to do this. That basic, basic reason was, I want to live. And if I can't live in this house, and can't serve in this house, I have nothing else. I'll starve. We want to live. We want to lay hold of eternal life. And the only way is to become a bondservant of Christ. The question is how? How do we do it? You know, how in this flesh, in which no good thing dwells, and I don't even know my own heart, how can I honestly and truly pray, Lord, make me your servant? How can I truly desire that? I can say the words, but how can I truly desire it in all honesty? What's the key? What opens the door that I find myself worshiping God truly in spirit and in truth and becoming a bondservant? And there's a lot of things people will say, well, you have to read your Bible. Absolutely true. Absolutely, absolutely necessary. You have to be people of prayer. Absolutely true. Absolutely true. We need to be lights in this world. We need to be preaching the gospel by our words and our life, Uh, being salt and light in this world. Absolutely true. That's what we need to be doing. Uh, In these days, there has never been a greater need for complete devotion to God. If we do these things, we will be serving our Lord. But putting our devotion to God first... It's like putting the cart before the horse. That was the problem with the Ephesian church In the book of Revelations. The letter that Jesus wrote had John write to the church at Ephesus. They were devoted. They were really devoted. I wish I was as devoted as the people in that church were. They were devoted, but Jesus said to them, remember therefore from where you have fallen, and if you don't, the light will go out. The light in your church will go out. The question is, how do I do these things, and why do I do these things? Salvation, the Bible says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Salvation is a gift, and the gift and callings of God are irrevocable, the Bible says. We can't, again, we can't lose our salvation. It won't be taken away from us. But if we continue in unconfessed sin and broken fellowship with God, we die. We don't die eternally. We don't lose our salvation. But that being separated from Christ and not being with him, it's like like a degree of death. We're, We're missing out on the abundant quality of life that God would have for us. We may be in him, but we won't be with him. And that's a degree of death. We know David's story, King David. Uh, It says in the spring of the year when the kings go out to battle, David stayed home, and he sent out uh, Joab and his his servants. So David is not where he's supposed to be. He's not doing what he's supposed to be doing. And if there is one person in the Old Testament that Satan wanted to destroy, it was David, Uh, because from his lineage would come the Messiah. So Satan, like the roaring lion, is just roaring, roaming around, watching, looking, and he sees it. David doesn't go out to battle. He's not where he's supposed to be. And then it says that he arose one evening. So he's been sleeping all day. Who knows what he was doing the night before. But he's sleeping. He arises one evening, and he's walking along the wall, and he sees Bathsheba, and Satan springs the trap. And he's overcome He's become spiritually lazy. And he takes her in. He has relationships with her. Uh, She goes home, and she sends him a message later that she is with child, that she's pregnant. The last thing David wanted to hear. So he connives his way. He gets her husband to come back from the battle. Her husband Uriah, who was an honorable man, he was one of David's mighty men. He connives him to come back, hoping he will go and be with his wife, and then he could say, the child, Go up to him and say, Hey, congratulations, you're having a baby. Uriah is an honorable man. He won't do it. As long as my fellow soldiers, my brothers, are in the field, I'm not going to go home and be with my wife. So David can't get him to do it. So, David has to figure out a way to cover his tracks because if it's found out what I have done, I'm finished. So, he sends for Uriah, or he tells Joab to put Uriah in the front of the bo- uh, battle and has him murdered. And then he takes the grieving widow into his palace and marries her, and pff, sin covered. And not only that, but everybody will think I'm a nice guy because I've married this grieving widow. He lives with this knowledge of his sin for close to a year. And in the Psalms, he speaks of the spiritual and emotional and physical anguish that he went through, living with this unconfessed sin, living with this guilt. And when confronted by Nathan the prophet, he confesses, I have sinned against the Lord. Finally, he confesses his sin. And and God tells him, you will not die. You're not going to die, but the wages of sin. His life is never the same. His authority is never the same. It affects his family for generations. Tragedy after tragedy. Someone said, after David's sin, he did not become a better king or father, but he became a better psalmist. You know, in the book of Job, Job's friends judged him and condemned him with lies. They said to him, the reason you're going through all this agony and all this pain and all these trials is because you've sinned. You're you're evil. They, They accused him of wickedness. They accused him with lies. You're getting what you deserve, they told him, because of your sin. You're just getting what you deserve. If God gives us what we deserve, whether it's blessing or cursing, then the Bible isn't true. He never gives us what we deserve. But they judged him and condemned him with lies, just like they did Jesus. Our enemy, the accuser of the brethren, Satan, he brings condemnation to our hearts. He accuses us and condemns us. But the weird thing is, you know, in my life anyways, The enemy doesn't condemn me with lies. He condemns me with true things. The things he accuses me of are true. They're right. But the accusations are not reality. They're true, but they're not truth. They're not the truth. You can't condemn a person who has been justified. You can't condemn a person who has been declared innocent and clean in the eyes of the judge. Romans 5.9 says, Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. We've been justified by Jesus' death on the cross. And justified is even more than forgiven. It's like we've always heard the definition of it from the pulpit. It's just like you have never sinned. We've been justified. It's like in God's eyes, Jesus has made us so clean and his salvation is so complete that in God's eyes, we haven't done anything wrong. But we can say, that's not true. How can I, you know, that's hard to swallow because I know I've done wrong. You know, the accusations of the enemy are true. I know I've done wrong. How can that be? It can be if you died and have been raised to life a new creation. And that's the only way which Jesus accomplished through his death and his resurrection. Can you imagine the condemnation that the enemy laid on David, the main person that he wanted to destroy? You know, you, David, you wrote, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever, and you're the one, you committed adultery, you stole another man's wife, committed adultery with her, and then to cover your sin, you had her husband murdered. And you think that you're going to dwell in the house of the Lord forever? But David knew. And he wrote in the Psalms, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. After his sin, in Psalm 51, David wrote, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. We know from reading the Old Testament that David knew grace. He knew he wasn't going to lose his salvation. God told him, you're not going to die. He wasn't going to lose his salvation, just as we are not going to lose our salvation. We can't lose it. But David, it was like he he knew, Lord, I know I'm in you, but I don't want to be not with you. I want to be with you. I I don't want to become useless in the kingdom. I, I don't want to be, you know, left behind as you're traveling down the road. I want to be with you. And he wrote, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. And that's the key. There's the key to receiving the quality of life, the abundant life that Jesus would have for us. Restore unto me the joy of your salvation, the, the, to the quality of eternal life, which is becoming a bondservant of Christ. But David knew that if I don't have that joy of your salvation, you know, I've sinned, and I know I'm not going to lose my salvation. I know I'm saved. But if I don't have that joy of your salvation, I'll die. I'll die. If we as a church or individuals do not have that joy of salvation, he may know our works, but as he said to the Ephesians, you have left your first love. Remember from where you have fallen, or I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place. Eternal life is being a bondservant of Jesus Christ. And if we're not praying, if that's not our heart, if we don't see our need, and we're not praying, Lord, every day, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Cast me not away from your presence. You know, I know I'm not going to lose my salvation, but I want to be in your presence. I want to be with you. I want to be in fellowship with you. And restore to me the joy of your salvation. If we're not praying that, we may have the quantity, but we won't have the quality. It's why Jesus said to the Ephesians, you have left your first love, remember therefore from where you have fallen. It's why he said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. It's why in Deuteronomy he spoke to Israel of the tragedy of loss. He said, because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and gladness of heart for the abundance of everything. It's why Jesus said, You will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. And then in that psalm, restore to me the joy of your salvation, he says, then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners shall be converted to you. Once I am restored to you, brought back into fellowship with you, and that joy is restored, then I'll teach sinners your ways, and people will be converted. Um, That's how the light shines in us. So the key to abundant life is being a bond servant of Christ, joyfully, gladly, and rejoicing, praying, Lord, make me your slave. I want to live. I want to be with you. But there's even more to it than that. Uh, if it's just about being a servant, I will, would never measure up if it's just about servanthood. But what does it say? Jesus told about the son who came home. And the son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals in his feet, and bring the fatted calf here and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again, was lost and is found, and they began to be merry. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord. And uh, we just pray for that. It is so needful in these days to be overwhelmed by the joy of your salvation, Lord, knowing the price that you paid and being melted by that, worshiping you in spirit and in truth. And if we have that joy, that peace, and that rest, then sinners will be converted. So we pray, restore to us, Lord. Bring us back to you, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.